0: Well good morning gentlemen. It's good to be with you today. Hope you got a nice breakfast and the coffee's got your blood flowing. I'm barely ambulatory until I get at least five cups. So so good to be with you today and it's a privilege to be here. I'm glad you're here and I'm so glad we have yet another opportunity to come together as God's people to study His Word together as we continue on in 1 John. I'd just like to remind you at the very beginning, if uh, you're visiting with us today and this is your first time, all of our previous talks from all the different speakers and their notes are are online. You can go to 2pc.org and get those. There's even a Second Presbyterian app for your iPhone that our communications department put together that's got a lot of nifty stuff on it, but take advantage of that. All of it's very encouraging. Um, Today, we're going to continue on right where we left off last week, both thematically and exegetically. You remember uh, that there are two purposes that John gives us this letter, right? There were false teachers back then, and they were teaching all sorts of funky stuff about the doctrine of Jesus, false doctrine about Jesus, and also false doctrine about what it means to follow Jesus. And so, John gives us this letter for two overarching reasons. One, to, to eliminate false assurances of salvation and also to provide you know, accurate and real assurances of salvation. He wants us to know what true Christianity is, what it looks like, what it feels like. And so really his purpose is for the Christian. You know, I know sometimes it feels like this when we read a convicting letter like this. It, he his purpose isn't to scare us. You know, sometimes we can read this and you know, it's just very, very scary. You know, it makes us kind of doubt. That's not what John's purposes are. He wants us to know what true Christianity is to encourage us to truly follow Christ as we've been commanded and to repent where we must repent. And we know that the Christian life is a life of repentance. Then secondly, for the non-believer, really what he wants to do is to show them the truth and the beauty and the power of gospel of Jesus Christ and the hopes they would come to know uh, Jesus in a very saving way. You know, to John, and as we know as Christians, there is no God like the God of the Bible, and John wants to make sure that people know who he is and is in a relationship with him. Now, last week we saw that John had this really special teaching about the family of God, right? And he said two things, uh, or rather, there's two different types of families. Um, There's the family of God, then there's the family of the devil. That's it. There's no in-between. There's only two families in existence on this earth, the family of God and the family of the devil. John would not have done well in the South, okay? The man is completely void of Southern politeness, okay? He does not blow smoke in this this chapter. And I'm glad he doesn't because he wants us to know true reality. He doesn't want anybody to be mistaken. There's only two realms of existence in life, in the family of God and in the family of the devil. Now, in the family of God, he told us that as Christians, we have been reborn in the Spirit. We have new birth. And because we have new birth and a new heart and the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us and He's transforming us, our lives are going to be drastically different from the lives of the people of this world. And he said, one of those major differences are, we saw last week, is that the people of God, the children of God, pursue a life of holiness, right? And they do that not to earn God's favor. All right? They do that rather to live in response to the favor they've already received. But the children of God pursue a life of holiness. And today we're going to see another characteristic. The family of God, the people of God, love each other. We have brotherly love within the family of God. The necessity of the brotherly love in the family of God. That's the theme of our passage today. Now folks, if you just have a cursory read through the scriptures, this concept is not foreign to us. Of course, the family of God loves each other. And it's not that hard to give our assent to. Of course, as Christians, we're called to love each other. But let's be real All right, practically speaking, it is not always easy to love each other, right? That's right. Family life is difficult. I mean, think about your own biological families just for a moment. Has anybody ever seen Christmas Vacation before with Chevy Chase? Favorite movie, watch it every Christmas. I watch it really every month. I mean, it's just favorite character, of course, is good old Uncle Eddie, right? And you know, if you don't know Uncle Eddie, Uncle Eddie was just this just just obnoxious relative that the rest of the Griswold family wanted have absolutely nothing to do with. You know, my favorite scene is at the beginning when, when Eddie shows up unannounced and, and Clark is so disheveled. He, Eddie, do you want some eggnog? Can I drive you out to the middle of nowhere, leave you for dead? <laughs> and Eddie, you know, just completely unaware, says, no, Clark, I'm fine right here. Thanks for asking. But it's such a funny movie and Clark just cannot help but show his disdain for his, for his lovable but just train wreck of a cousin. Now, I think that movie is so funny, and and people love it so much because it's relatable. And the truth is, most of us, to one degree or another, have an Uncle Eddie in our families. And Clark's desire to find just freedom from, from experiencing just the obnoxiousness of his cousin is something that we can all relate to. Now, I bring this up because the Church of Jesus Christ is filled with Uncle Eddie's. It's filled with them. I read one commentator that said being a Christian often feels like being in a family with a thousand drunk uncles. (laughs) And that's true, but he said the ironic part is we often don't realize that we are one of those uncles ourselves, which is also true. Because think about it, the church is made up and filled with sinners. We all have our messes, we all have our quirks, we all have our dysfunction, and when we throw us in a giant room together, we often put the fun in dysfunction as the church of Jesus Christ. Church life is difficult. And more seriously, I mean seriously, church family is the source of some of our deepest wounds for a lot of us. And it's just difficult dealing with other people's dysfunction. I mean, we have our own dysfunction to deal with, and it's just exhausting entering into other people's lives. And and the truth of the matter is sometimes people are just difficult to love. And because of that, sometimes we do act like Clark, right? Where we at all costs try to distance ourselves from the Eddies. And unless there are our family or our very best friends, we keep most people at arm's distance because we just don't want to step in anything. It's cleaner, just to keep church focused church folk and to see them twice a week because church life can be so difficult. But the question that John puts before us in this passage is, is that type of behavior even an option in the family of God? Now think about when you proposed to your wife. All right? you proposed to her and you met her family for the first time and, and you met those folks and just say they were characters from the far side, okay they were wacky folks and, and you go to your wife or your fiance at the time and You say, honey, you are the apple of my eye. I love you. You complete me, the whole thing. But your family, I mean, my goodness. Listen, it's either me or them, all right? Take it or leave it. What would she have said? Put it this way. Can we truly claim Christ as our elder brother while being indifferent to others that he claims as brothers? Or more theologically, can we, can we truly accept the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the patience and the long suffering of Jesus while refusing to extend that to one another? What John is saying is that's how the world operates. That's the world's way of love. But the family of God, it is marked by brotherly love, true brotherly love. It's indispensable. One, because it it models and it emulates the power of the gospel. We're going to see this is exactly what the gospel does. It joins eddies together. But we're also going to see that it really is a matter of life and death. Brotherly love is not optional. It's not periphery. It's not a suggestion, but it is essential in the family of God. Now, there's three things that we're going to see together in this passage. But before we do that, let's go ahead and open up the scriptures and read them together. It's John chapter 3, verse 11. Hear the word of God. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you as your kids, as your people, as your adopted family. And Lord, we pray that you would settle our hearts and our minds for the next however long. And that we would not be thinking about what we have on our desks, we wouldn't be thinking about what's going on or what we're consumed with or worried about, but Lord, that we would come together as brothers and that we would feast in your word. We pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to the power of the gospel and that we would see the magnificent implications of being united together in one spirit. Lord, we pray that you would speak through me, that you would speak in spite of me that you would open up our hearts and our ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And we pray this in the blessed name of our risen King Jesus. Amen. All right, there's three things that I think John wants us to see here. The first and foremost, brotherly love is an indispensable feature in the family of God. Brotherly love is an indispensable feature in the family of God. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Listen, in the Bible, family is the chief metaphor the Bible uses to describe the church. It's all over the place. God is our father. Jesus is our husband, family language. The spirit is our counselor, our comforter to the redeemed, beloved, and oftentimes spiritually dysfunctional group of eddies that we are, okay? In the Bible, we're told that we are brothers, mothers, sisters, and fathers to one another. Now, just like we did not choose our biological families, it is true we did not choose each other. But here's the fact. God chose us. Every single one of us. And he adopted us into his family. He chose us. He loves us. He redeems us. And he calls us to love one one another just as he has loved us. Now, there's a few things that John wants us to see here in verses 11 through 13. First and foremost, the way of love has been established since the beginning. Okay, this is not a new thing. The way of love has been established since the beginning. We see this in verse 11. Now, when John uses that phrase, from the beginning, there's different schools of thought. Some folks think that he might be referring back to the the dawn of time, back into Genesis, which very well might be what he's talking about. He's about to refer to Cain here in just one verse. But I happen to be in the other camp. When I think John says that phrase, from the beginning, I think he is talking about when the Christians first received the gospel and were taught the ways of Jesus, That is, when when Jesus Christ came and he established his church, since the beginning of the church, the way of love has always been the way. It's always marked the church since its inauguration. Because remember, the, the false teachers, those folks were not marked with love. Okay, They were marked by the exact opposite. They were marked with hate. They were not loving folks. They were spreading dissension. They were sowing seeds of discord. They were exalting themselves over other brothers or other Christians. And they were looking out for El Numero Uno themselves. And they were not looking out from other people. They have deviated from true Christianity. So I think what John is saying here in, in, in verse 11 is, Church, don't be influenced by what these folks are doing. Go back to when the church first dawned. When we were first included into the family of God. And you will see that the way of love has always been the way of God's people. It's always been the way. Now when Christianity first burst onto the scene okay? Uh, The Greco-Roman world, we see this in scripture, we're told it in history. The Greco-Roman world was completely shocked by the things they saw. When Christ came and he established the church, what they saw just completely put them besides themselves. They were just utterly shocked by what they saw. And they were saying to themselves, you know, there's something different about this religion. There's something real in this faith because it's, it's just changing people. There's a passage in Acts, I believe it's Acts 16, when the Roman official said, okay, here comes the Christians. They've completely turned this world upside down. There's things that are going on in this camp. And what they were seeing was the way that Christians were actually loving each other. You know, these people who had no business being in relationship or fellowship with one another, they were actually loving each other. And up until that point, the world had never seen anything like it. I mean, it was freaking people out. Now, if you want to get a snapshot of what it was like, go to Acts chapter 11, read it later. It's fascinating. I'll summarize it for you real quick. In Acts chapter 11, the primary city that's mentioned is Antioch. Now, in history, we're told that Antioch was a vastly and a majorly diverse city, even more so than Rome, actually. It was one of the more diverse cities in all the Greco-Roman world. Now, we're also told in history that like other cities, Antioch had walls around its borders to protect the city from invaders and folks they just didn't want there. But unlike other cities, Antioch also had walls within its city borders, okay? And what it was doing, those walls, it was segregating different ethno groups. So it's kind of like the French Quarter. The French are on one corner, you know, the other folks are on the other corner. But in here, they actually had walls separating these people. And we're told there was at least four groups. There were the Africans, the Syrians, the Greeks, and the Jews. Probably more, but at least those four. And they're all just hanging out. And they were segregated from one another. They did not interact. And they had no problem with that. That's just the way the world worked back then. You do you, let us be us, and let's not get in each other's way. This is how we're going to do life. But in Acts chapter 11, we're told that two preachers, one from Cyrene and one from Cyprus, went to Antioch. And they started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel did not return void. People started coming to know the Lord in a saving way. And when that happened, weird stuff started happening. News spread like wildfire. It even got back to the Jerusalem council where all the Jewish Christians were held up. And news got back to them and and they were just kind of dumbfounded about what they were hearing. So they sent Barnabas and Barnabas went to Antioch to confirm what they were hearing. and, And Barnabas saw what was going on and he went back to the Jerusalem council and he says, hey, everything that we've heard is absolutely true. And the Jerusalem council was just utterly amazed. Do you know why they were amazed? Because people were coming to Christ over city walls and they were worshiping together, and they were having fellowship together. Those walls were coming down. And this is what Paul says of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2, that Christ is our peace, that he has torn down the dividing walls of hostility, that he has conformed us, made us into one new man, reconciled us all back to God through his cross, and that's what was happening in Antioch. And people did not even have a word for this. I mean, people who were not supposed to love each other were actually loving each other. They didn't have a word for this, and so they invented a word. You know what that word was? Christianity. They, they didn't know how to describe what they were seeing because up to that point, they had never seen anything like this. So they called them Christians. That's the only thing they could describe it as. It was unbelievable. There's this historian. His name is Vladder uh, I can't remember his name, but he taught at Yale. He was a history teacher before he died. And he wrote this book, And in the book, he's trying to explain why Christianity, among a sea of religions with the Roman Empire, was the religion that lasted post the Roman fall, the fall of the empire. And he's trying to explain why is it that this religion is the one that continued, not just continued, but flourished. And he had four different reasons, and one of them was pretty compelling. He said, Christianity, by far and away, was the most inclusive religion. Up until that point, all the other pagan religions, even Judaism, were tied to certain people, groups, regions, and nations, but not Christianity. All these other religions uh, and, and, you know, pagan religions, they kind of gave themselves over to the elites, the educated, the rich, and the mighty, but not Christianity. He said Christianity was so appealing because it was a religion for all people, for all all nations, all races, all cultures, men and women. It It was a faith for all people. And it was absolutely amazing what they were seeing. I mean, blue collars were leading white collars. That never happened in other religions. Women were given a place of respect. And there were second-class citizens back then, but not, but not in the Christian circles. The refugees, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, they were received and accepted. They were loved. Orphans and widows, they were eyesores to the rest of the world, but not in Christianity. They were given a place of significance. Rich people and poor people dined together. Smart people and uneducated people dined together. These folks were having, they were actually treating each other as brothers. Folks that people once despised and hated, they were now calling family. (laughs) And they were loving each other. So this historian said, you know, it was the most inclusive religion that the world had ever seen, but still that's not even a reason to explain why Christianity flourished the way that it did. The only explanation is, is that the church's unique teaching on the person of Christ and the unparalleled love that he offered. And it's because of that unparalleled love that strangers, others, once enemies, were now loving each other. Friends, that is the power of the gospel. And it's been that way since the beginning. And so in verse 11, what John is saying is like, Christians, I know that these false teachers and all these non-believers, their lifestyle isn't resembling that, but that's not an indictment on the gospel. That's an indictment on them. Since Christ came and he burst out onto the scene and inaugurated his church, since the very beginning, brotherly love has marked the people of God. Now, it's because of that, we see in verses 12 through 13, that John says this, the family of God can expect hostility from the world. (laughs) Thanks, John. He says, because we've been marked by love, the adopting love of God and have a love for each other, The Christian community, the family of God, can expect hostility from the world. Now, in verses 12 through 13, John makes his first and only reference to the Old Testament when he brings up old Uncle Cain, right? We know who Cain is. Cain was the first biological child of Adam and Eve, and Cain killed his brother, Abel. Now, he brings Cain up because he's kind of a counterexample of how Christians are supposed to act. We don't kill each other. (laughs) We don't murder each other. We love each other. So he's a counterexample there's a few implications we're going to see here, but I really want us to juice this case study that we've been given in Cain because there's some really interesting things here, okay? The first thing I want us to see is that the origin of hate is from the devil. The origin of hate is from the devil. Let's be law and order people right now, okay? In verse 12, John says two very important things about Cain. Number one, he gives the indictment, the verdict. Cain is of the evil one. Then secondly, he gives the evidence. Cain murdered his brother Now, what is John telling us here? Well, we'll remember from what we talked about last week and in John chapter 8 that Jesus doesn't really care who our biological parents are, all right? He's not interested in who our mommy and daddy are. So the evil one is not Adam in this case. We know Adam brought all of humanity into the fall. It would be easy to describe him as the evil one, but that's not who John or Jesus is referring to. Jesus is interested in our spiritual heritage, And what John is telling us here, that the evil one whom he belonged to was his spiritual father, the devil. Okay, remember what Jesus said in in John chapter 8. Jesus says, because you do not hear me, because you do not believe in me, you're not of me, but you are of your father, the devil. You follow his will, who from the beginning was a what? Murderer. (laughs) And Cain murdered his brother." It's interesting, the word for murderer in both instances is actually translated a person killer, and both of them get that description. Now, what's really interesting, if you look in the Greek syntax, if you just look at the sentence structure, John is not saying that Cain is of his father the devil because he murdered Abel. What he is saying is, is that Cain murdered Abel because he was already of his father the devil which is exactly what we talked about last week. Remember, it's our, our lifestyle, a life lived that, that that displays what our true spiritual heritage is. And what we see in this passage is Cain's spiritual heritage was that his father was the devil, and that manifested in being a murderer, okay? Now, I'm pretty quite confident that there's no one in this room that is a cold-blooded murderer. At least I hope that's the case, okay? I feel safer knowing this is a murder-free Bible study. (laughs) The pressure's off in that sense. But we do run the danger, just like any time we have a Bible study, when we look at verse 12 in isolation and we say, you know what, I have never murdered anybody, I'm in the clear. I haven't murdered anybody this week. John, thanks for the test. It was an easy one. I aced it. We never read verses in isolation of themselves. We always read them in context. And in the immediate context, look at verse 15. John says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And he only got that out of the greater context of Jesus' own teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, you have heard it said before, you shall not murder, but I say unto you, anyone who is angry at his brother is liable for judgment. Now notice that even Jesus, he didn't even use the word hate, he used that word anger. Okay, it's unrighteous anger, but still he didn't use that word hate. When that tells me is... That what's being described here isn't always an outward manifestation of hostility. It's being described as this inward feeling, this inward belief, this inward disposition. Now that can manifest in cruelty, but it can also manifest in simple indifference, is what commentators say. So the point is, murder, that's just the manifestation of the root of hate that abides in the heart of an unregenerate person. And the origin of that is the devil. Now, the second thing that we see in this passage is that the object of hate is Christians. Look what John says here. Verse 13, he says, Christians, don't be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. All right, again, very encouraging, John. Now, obviously, he's not saying that Christians have cornered the market on being hated, okay? There's plenty of hate out in the world. So he's not saying that we are peculiar in this instance. Nor is he saying or trying to invoke us to boo-hoo about it. He's not getting us to feel sorry for ourselves. Okay, John was not a mamby-pamby. The guy was a hardcore dude. All right, he was not feeling sorry for himself. But he does want us to be ready for it. Now, what is the evidence that he has that the world hates us? In the Jewish circles and the Jewish traditions and also the Christian traditions, Cain was kind of an archetype for the world. Okay, so he represented how the world thought and how they acted and what their disposition was towards the people of God. So he's a counterexample again, he's an archetype. Now we don't really know why Cain killed Abel. We're not told explicitly, but from the context of this passage and if you go to places like Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, we do know that it has something to do with jealousy. Okay, now beyond that, we don't know why you know, Cain shish-kebobbed his brother. But we do know it was, had something to do because his heart was far from God, and because of that, it resulted in hate for his brother. Those two things go hand in hand. A heart far from God results in hate for a brother. Friends, this is just that good old-fashioned spiritual principle that we know, that those who don't do right don't like those who do. Back in high school, okay, every swirly given was given to the do-gooders. No rule breaker ever found himself at the business end of a toilet. That just did not happen, okay? And the reason wasn't because they were goofballs or nerds. It was simply because mainly their lifestyle convicted them. And that is true in the Christian life. The life of a righteous person confronts an unrighteous person. And the reason that is so is because they see Christ in us. All right, the origin of hate is the devil. They... Object of hate is the Christians, and the reason is, is because they see Christ in us. John says in chapter 15, verse 18 through 20, if the world hates you, this is Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you." All of these things they will do to you on account of me because they don't know who sent me. So the principle is the world does not know God, therefore it hates God, and because we have been born of God, the world will also hate us. <laughs> Again, thanks for the encouragement. But listen, this does, is intended to sober us, but there is a massive vote of encouragement we can see here. Okay, it's a lot like victory in Europe Day. When the Allies defeated the Germans, I know I do a lot of World War II now. I'm reading that book, like I told you last week. When the Allies Allies defeated Germany, when that happened, the world knew that the war was over. They knew it was. It was just a matter of time before VJ Day confirmed what they already knew to be true. And the same is true with us and Christians in the already not yet aspect of the eschaton. The battle still wages, the war still wages. But friends, in Christ we know that a decisive victory has already been won. It has already been won. Therefore, as Christians, we can have confidence that we will overcome the world because we have faith in the one who already has overcome the world. In Christ, as brothers, we are more than conquerors is what Paul tells us in Romans 8. Now, before we move on, here's a little takeaway, okay? To the degree in which we follow Christ, the world will hate you for it. And We got to understand that. To the degree that we follow Christ, the world will hate us for it. Because remember, the world doesn't hate you They hate Christ in you, what they see of you, your lifestyle. They hate Jesus and what he's doing in you. The world hates him. Now, this is what that does not mean. That does not mean we go out looking for a fight, okay? We don't try to become martyrs. There were martyrs back in the early church that tried to be martyrs, and they faltered because they're out for their own glory and not the glory of God. We do not go out looking for a fight, nor do we act like jackasses to the non-believing world. We don't try to to beat them over the head with a Bible. We don't try to rub their nose in it. We are told that we're not of the world, but we're also commanded to love those in the world, including our enemies, just as Christ loved us. But this is what that does mean. If the world does not see Jesus in you, it will not have a problem with you. So we must ask ourselves the question, if the world does not have a problem with me, if it's not conflicted by my life, why? Why is that the case? So we got to marinate on that question. But here's just a little summary of where we've been so far. Because of our new birth in Christ, we have been marked by love. It's It's an indispensable aspect of God's family, brotherly love. Okay, now the world's going to hate us because of this, but it's not because of you, but it's because of Christ in you. We don't have to be fearful because of that, because we have faith in the one that's already overcome the world. Now that's point one. Now very quickly, in point two, we see that family consciousness fuels our brotherly love for each other. We see this in verses 14 through 15. Family consciousness reveals, or rather fuels, our brotherly love for one another. One of the things as a young adult pastor that I most often see with young adults that are coming in the church is that they've just graduated college, they've started their career, and they're ready to get their life together, their act together. And so they'll come into my office, and I hear this all the time, you know, Barton, I've never really been involved with the church, but listen, I know that I need to grow up, I want to be better, I need to do better, there's things I need to fix, so, so that's why I'm here. Now, part of me is really glad they say that because I have an opportunity to share with them the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. The other half of me really wants to go find whoever the heck taught them that and grab them by the ears and kick them in the cheeks, all right? And the reason is because that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a manual or self-help program for you to fix yourself. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ making you new. And we grow in faith, not through behavioral modification but by abiding in Christ, becoming more and more inundated with who He is and what He has done and what He has promised. And that's how we grow in Christ's likeness being overwhelmed by who He is and His love for us. And we need to understand that because passages like this, it's easy for us to turn it into a works-righteousness thing. That is not what John is teaching us. So, number one, family consciousness fuels our brotherly love for each other. Now, what we see implicitly implied in verses 14 through 15 is that the Christian life is not mechanical, friends, it's organic. It's not mechanical, it's organic. It's not something that we do in order to achieve. It's organic. Nowhere in the Bible is behavioralism or moralism taught. Nowhere. Now, honestly, there are places where Jesus and John and Paul say things like, don't be envious, don't steal, don't be a thief, don't kill anybody, be kind, love your neighbor, love each other. And on the surface, that does kind of seem like other world religions and philosophies in the world because they had those same type of commands. That is until we ask the question, why? Why does Jesus command those things? Why does Paul command those things? See, the world tells you to do those things. The other philosophies, other religions tell you to do those things in order to become who you want to be. They say do in order to become. Christianity is vastly different. Christianity says in Christ you already are. Therefore do. Do. It says, You are the son of a king in Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, simply live out who you are. Do you see how amazing that is? Listen, without the gospel of Jesus, the true gospel that tells us we're more sinful than we ever dared to imagine, but more loved in Christ than we ever dared to believe, without that gospel, all we are left with is a Brady Bunch morality. You know, clean your room, Marcia, so you can be in good graces with the family. We're, we're left with this. Truth without grace situation. Friends, that's miserable. For most of my life up until the age of 20, I navigated in that circle and it was miserable. That was until I heard the gospel preached in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which says you are saved by grace through faith. and This is not your own doing, but it's a gift from God. You are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. When I heard that, it just laid me out. It was like Benny Hinn put his hand on me or something. It was Unbelievable. Why? Because it tells us. The Bible never tells us to love others without first telling us we're already loved. Do you understand how amazing that is? It doesn't say do this to become. It says you already are, therefore do. The love of God is not something that that we achieve or earn, but it's something that we receive by faith. Listen, Christianity is not primarily something that you do. It's not something you just decide to pick up one day to fix yourself. It's something that by faith in Christ is being done to us. We are kings in Christ. He says, this is who you are. You're just simply living out what the Holy Spirit is working in. That's what it is. So the second point, and it's very obvious because I just said it like eight times. We are called to live out what we've been redeemed to be. What our new identity is. Well, Barton, what is our new identity? I'm glad you asked. In verse 14a and 15a, we see that we have been delivered out of darkness and death. John says we know in 14a. What do we know? That we have passed out of death. Two things that are interesting about death. Death here is not referring to a future event. Unless Christ comes back, we're all going to push up daisies at some point. That is a future event. But that's not what John is talking about here. What John is talking about here is the realm of existence that now exists because of the fall of man in the garden. The realm of existence that all of humanity lives in outside of Christ. And friends, being separated from God because of our sin is nothing short of death. So John is saying here, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, you are essentially the walking dead and you don't even know it. So it's this current thing. It's an existence. Now the other thing about death we see all throughout the writings of John is that death and uh, darkness are synonymous with each other. They're kind of the same thing. We see this in uh, 1 John, John chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, uh, whoever says he is in light, meaning that he knows God and is in relationship with him, and hates his brother, is still in darkness and walks around in darkness and does not know what he is doing because darkness has blinded him. John is saying there that the failure to love or the lack of love for your brothers and others is indicative that you are the walking dead. And what that looks like and what that feels like is simply being a blind man. You don't know which way's up. You don't know true reality. It's kind of interesting. If you go back to the fourth gospel in John chapter 13, I think this is why John describes the situation when Judas steals bread from Jesus or just you know, with his betraying hand takes bread from the hands of Jesus. We're told that he got up and left Christ and he went outside into what? Nighttime. Now I could be reading into this, but this is what I think that means. Remember, John is a theological gospel. What I think John is saying is that Judas rejected Jesus. He rejected the light, and because of that, he went out into darkness. And that's what it means to not be in relationship with Christ, not to know Christ. You are simply in darkness. But in 14a, John says, but we know that we have been delivered from the hellish experience of not knowing God. Our eyes have been opened. We have actually been delivered from being the walking dead. And secondly, we have been transferred into light and life. We see that third point. To embrace Jesus by faith means that we have come into light. Our spiritual blindness has been cured. In Ephesians 4, this is my summary of Ephesians 4, Paul says that we are no longer like the Gentiles who walk in futility in the darkness of their minds, alienated from the life of God. We are children of light, lights ourselves, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. We know the true God and we have life, true satisfying life. Therefore, Paul says in Ephesians 4, Put away wrath. Put away anger and bitterness and be kind, tenderhearted, and forgive one another just as I've forgiven you. What is Paul talking about? He is saying, listen, we've been raised to the newness of life. Therefore, just live that out. You know true reality. You see each other as they really are. You know who God is. You're in relationship with God. (laughs) Therefore, live out this new existence as being his sons. My wife is from Augusta. And she knew this family grew up with, uh, this husband and wife who adopted four children from Russia. All right, they weren't actual brothers. They were uh, orphans together. And as you know, orphanages in Russia are awful. And actually, we should be praying about that because right now it's closed. But they were orphans from Russia, and this family adopted all four of them. And, you know, whenever you adopt a kid, there's, there's this period of connecting to your new parents. And so that was actually a long time with this family, but still mom and dad loved these kids. They were their kids. They adopted them. Well, every every, a little bit after the adoption, the mother started noticing things went missing in the house. Um, You know, like jewelry started missing, and like the china was missing, and all these things started going missing. And and you can imagine the parents were, you know, really disturbed, (laughs) like someone breaking into our house and us not knowing about it. I mean, it's this weird thing. Well, mother one day just goes and cleans her kid's room, and she got up on all fours to clean up underneath the beds and get all the junk out, and there she saw it. It was the loot. All the jewelry, all the knives and forks, all of it was underneath one of the, the kid's bed. And so she got the kid, and she, and she went up to him, and she just dropped down on her knees and said, Baby, why are you taking things? Why, why are you doing that? And I don't really remember what it exactly he said, but he indicated that his whole life he's been in and out of people's lives and homes. And he's had to fend for himself and fend for these other three kids. And just in case it was going to happen again, he wanted to make sure he was provided for and so the mother is just crying, and she says, Baby, don't you understand all this is yours? You're mine. You're no one else's. You're mine, and all of this is yours. What John is telling us that in Christ, all of that is ours. All of the riches of heaven are ours. We're sons. We're kings. We're brothers to Christ. We're brothers in Christ. All of it is ours. And what John is saying is simply live in light of who you are. Live it out. So we're called to live out who we're redeemed to be. Now, here's a little takeaway. In verse 15, we're taught that the inverse of love is hate. There is no middle ground here. John says we're either operating in the sphere of love or we're living in the sphere of death. There is no middle ground between love and hate, John says. I mean, a crime scene investigator. If you saw a dead body in the ground, he would not go up to that corpse and say, this man's exactly dead, okay? He wouldn't say that. There's no need to. If you're dead, you're dead. If you're alive, you're alive. And that's what John is saying here. You're either in the sphere of life in Christ or you're in the sphere of death. The children of God are marked by love. That's just who we are. We love God. We love the things of God. We love the people of God. Now, does that mean that if we fail in this, we're toast? Absolutely not. <laughs> we're going to fail in this all the time. But We should ask ourselves why. If we are marked by love as the children of God and we're not loving each other, why is that? Either we need to repent and be reconciled to our brother, or we need to do business with Christ in the first place. But having said that, listen, there are always going to be willpower that we need to exert to love each other. There's plenty of things that we need to do, that we should do, but we don't do. Okay? My wife asked me to clean the toilets. I'd rather be covered in honey and go on a bear watch than do that. It's the most disgusting thing in the world to me. But I do it because I love my wife and I know it pleases her. We love each other because we love God and we know it pleases God. There is always going to be willpower to love people who are hard to love. But friends, here's the deal. This is what we learn in 14 and 15. The more time that we spend with Jesus, the more time that we're overwhelmed by how much he loves us and what he has done, that he loved us in spite of our unlovableness, we're going to extend that same love to one another. And friends, it won't be a chore. It's going to be a joy. Because that's who Christ is making us into. He's making us into lovers. And we love each other as family. Now, thirdly and lastly, How are we supposed to love each other? What is love? In verses 16 through 18, we see that love is defined by the person of Christ. This is a major question that we have to ask, right? I mean, what what does it look like? We're commanded to love each other. What does it mean to actually love each other? That's not always the easiest thing in the world. Listen, we're immersed in a culture that has a very distorted view of love, okay? We just got out of Valentine's Day, which means, among other things, most of us were forced to watch a chick flick, okay? Every year, I try to convince my wife that Braveheart with William Wallace is the greatest love story of our time. Never goes over well. I beg Ryan all the time. In those movies, what do we see? We see how the world views love. Love is primarily an emotional, sentimental thing. All right? It's a feeling. It's a feeling of being complete, as Tom Cruise says. Don't lie. You've all seen that movie. You complete me. <laughs> That's how the world views love, It's this feeling that can be enjoyed or lost depending on yours or another person's lovability. Now, Howard Marshall, an evangelical scholar, says, now this is extremely dangerous, all right, because the world always identifies Christianity as being a call to love. They understand that Jesus has called us to love as Christians, but because they have this distorted view in their mind of what love is, they think to themselves, well, I already know what Christianity is about. Why in the world do I need Jesus for that? I'm already doing that. And what's really convicting, sometimes they look at how we treat each other and they say, they're not acting any differently than the rest of the world acts. Why in the world would I need Jesus Christ or the gospel? And another danger is as Christians, even believers, sometimes our definition of love can be tainted by what the culture says love is. And that has disastrous effects on our marriage and the way that we view and love each other. So John zeroes us in on what true love is, and he goes, Christians, look at the person of Christ if you want to know what it means to love each other. So the first thing that we see in 16a is that Christ is the model of love. and the verse 16a, this is what John says, by this we know love. Now love right there is the Greek word agape. All right, agape is the furthest thing from emotional sentiment. That's not what agape is. Agape is the selfless, sacrificial love of God that he gives freely in spite of someone's worthiness. And John says in 16b that the fullest manifestation of this type of love is the cross of Jesus Christ. Is the cross of Jesus Christ who, in spite of our ugliness and our sin and our unworthiness, laid down his perfect life for our imperfect lives because he chose to love us. That is agape love. Friends, this is not emotional. It's intensely practical, the agape love of Jesus. In Ephesians 5, when Paul commands us to love our wives, friends, he is not commanding emotion, okay? It's impossible to command emotion. Emotions are fleeting. There are some times we would rather have a candy bar than emotionally love our spouses. I mean, we just go through you know, seasons like that. Emotions are fleeting. Paul is not commanding emotion. He's commanding agape love that we give in spite of someone's worthiness or whether if we're feeling like it. There are so many marriages that end because they just simply fell out of love. And that's tragic. But John says emotions is not the point The point is covenant. The point is agape. The point is the promise to love. It's an intensely practical thing. Now, what does it mean to love like Christ? Obviously, our love, our sacrificial love, is not like Christ's. We don't give substitutionary atonement for each other. (laughs) We're not each other's saviors. Christ is savior. And friends, we always got to remember that because sometimes we run the danger of trying to be people's saviors. If you do that, it's just going to crush you and you're going to get crushed by other people. So we don't do that. And sometimes laying down each other's life actually means dying, but it doesn't usually mean that. So what does it mean to actually love each other sacrificially in the way that Christ has? Number one, it means that our love must include love for the other. I think this is so very important, especially today. Our love must be love for the other. In verse 16, we're told that he laid down his life for who? For us. For us. Friends, if we know anything about us is that at one point in time, we were extremely other than God. We're still other than God. We're not God. But there was a time that we were definitely other from God. We were alienated from him. We were separated from him. We were not in his family. We were his enemies. But still, Christ became like us, entered into our life, laid down his life for us because he loved us. What does that mean for us? It means that we move into the lives of others, especially those who are not like ourselves and love them. Paul says, listen, there are no Jews and Gentiles anymore. There are no male or female, slave or free. We're all one in the body of Christ. We've been reconciled to him. Friends, that's what the gospel does. It, it joins eddies. It joins different people groups. We're family And the rough part is, the sad part is, the church hasn't always functioned like this, and it's it's having a hard time functioning like this today. I mean, just think about this thing politically. I don't want to be political up here, and I won't be. But it's, it's no news. It is a powder keg out there politically. We've never seen our nation more divided than this in our lifetime. And because of that, friends, I mean... You know, Democratic Christians or Christians who are Democrats or Christians who are, I mean, they're lobbing grenades at each other, blowing people's arms off. I mean, it is violent out there, some of the things that people are saying. Is that how it's supposed to be? Think about Jesus' own discipleship group. In his own discipleship group, he had a tax collector. That is what you call pro-government. And he also had a zealot. Those guys wanted to burn down the government. Okay, These, These guys could not be on the opposite ends of the spectrum as they were. They were completely separate. But they loved each other. Why? Because their greatest commonality was Christ. And because of that, all their other dividing things just fell to the wayside. They weren't that important anymore. Yes, they sure had discussions. I'm sure their, their dinner conversations were very interesting, those two. But they weren't divided because of it, because they were united in Christ. Listen, Paul tells us that we regard no one according to the flesh anymore. And as Christians, we can't regard and view people through the lenses of a donkey or an elephant. We have to see people through the eyes of a slain lamb. Because Christ makes us one. And that is our ultimate, ultimate loyalty, being in Christ. Secondly, more generally, think about just the person that's older than you, younger than you, looks different than you, in a different socioeconomic group, different culture. We often find it hard to move into those people's lives. People that are other than us, we have a hard time with that. I don't know why the reason is. But at best, it's because it's easier for us just to hang out with people that are like us. But guys, thank God. I'm serious. I don't mean that in a irreverent way. Thank God that's not what he did. He didn't just hang out with himself in the Trinity. He had a perfect love and relationship within himself, but he chose to move into the other. He chose to move into our lives because he loved us. And that's what we're called to do, to move into each other's life, especially those who are other, because that just displays the power and the essence of the gospel. Now, if we're going to do this, number one, our love must be action-oriented. It must be action-oriented. We see this in verses 17 through 18. He says, if you have goods, meet the needs of others. That's essentially what he's saying in verses 17 through 18. Listen, imagine that you're on the end of a pier at you know, Moon Lake or Pickwick, and you're just having a grand old time by yourself. You're doing some fishing. Your feet are hanging on the water. You're just having a blast. You're getting, a, you're getting baked by the sun. Then all of a sudden, some random guy out of the middle of nowhere just runs and jumps into the lake. And right before he kills himself by drowning, he says, I'm doing this because I love you. What would you say? That guy's a moron. (laughs) I I I was fine. I was just sitting here. Why did he do that? I need to be loved. And we all need to be loved. But friends, if the act of love does not correlate with our need and necessity, it doesn't really prove love. It just proves the guy is misguided. Jesus knew us. He knew our needs. And he met our needs. He knew what we really needed, and he met them at great cost to himself. So Christians, what this requires of us is, one, that we actually know the needs of others. We actually get into each other's life, and we understand and try to figure out what each other need. Again, we're not each other's saviors. We can't meet each other's ultimate needs. We're not Jesus, but we still get into the people's lives and get to know what their needs are. And that requires us to actually get to know people. We don't keep them at arm's distance. We actually get to know people. Now, some folks will not let you in their life, but let that be on them, let it not be on you. We get to know people. And one of the reasons that people don't let other people in is because the greatest fear of all humanity, me, is to be known and rejected. We, (laughs) that's the worst thing in the world, to be known and not loved. Don't you understand we have an amazing opportunity to show people how infinitely great God's love is by being a a little shadow of it, by getting to know people entering into their life, getting to what their needs are. And that make them feel bad about it or less than. But we get to know them and we meet their needs. Secondly, it means that we actually put ourselves in a position to meet those needs. I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H. Again, as Christians, we are all about loving. I mean, that, that is our calling card. But C.S. Lewis says it's, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individuals, especially the other. Loving everybody in general is often an excuse for loving nobody in particular. we got to be particular. we got to get into each other's life. we got to know each other's needs, and we seek to meet those needs. Not to be each other's savior, but in order to build each other up so they will be what God intends for them to be. And that is the call of the Christian church, to love each other in this way. Friends, Jesus says the two greatest commandments that summarize all of the law of God is to love God and to love your brother, your neighbor, as yourself. The fulfillment of God's purposes for us is love. It's the hallmark of the Christian faith. But friends, the only way that we could ever love each other truly without strings attached is if we understand that we are completely, fully, and satisfied by God. That we're already loved. That everything we'd ever possibly need in this life or the next, we already have secured. And friends, that is exactly what is true of us in Christ. So always remember the cross is not only your model to love, it is also the power of your love. And so, friends, as we live out this calling together as family, let us rest in and meditate and swim in the truth of God's love for us. It's irrevocable in Christ. There's not one thing on earth, in heaven, or under the earth that could ever separate you from the love of God. Not devil, not even your own failure. You're irrevocably made the brother of Christ. And friends, in that love, this unbelievable love that God has given us as his dysfunctional church, may we be compelled to live as we are. Kings, and may we always be compelled to love each other as we are. Brothers, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Father, we can never hear enough about how much you love us. Father, we hear lies each and every day from our own heart, from culture, and from Satan himself that tempts us to despair. But Father, by your spirit and through your word, open our eyes to the unbelievable reality that you sacrificed all at great cost. Your son, your son you sacrificed because you love us. And Father, let us see that There is no love like this love. Let us be overwhelmed by it. Let us rest in it. And in response to that, let us be compelled to be your people, to live as we are, kings and brothers in Christ. And we pray this in the blessed name of King Jesus. Amen.